0: particular ingredient is the difference between success and failure. One particular ingredient, one specific component, one thing can mean the difference between success and failure. Sometimes one ingredient doesn't really matter all that much, but sometimes one ingredient is all the difference in the world. Take for example, the time when I was a kid. When I was a a kid, my dad was into model trains and our entire basement was one big model train set. And I remember as a kid one time wanting to know how the engines work. And if you want to know how a model train engine works, what's the best way to go about finding that out? Take it apart. Right, so I waited until my dad was asleep one day. He worked third shift a lot. So I waited until he was asleep one day, took it apart, got it mostly back together, except for one particular gear that did not have anywhere to go in that engine. So I figured it must have been a spare, it must have been non-functional, because it didn't have anywhere to go, so guess what happened? Of course, it didn't work. It was a nice engine to look at from then on. One gear was the difference between a working train engine and something that was nice to look at. And isn't that true for so many things in our life, that one ingredient can be sometimes The central ingredient. You ladies know what I'm talking about. If you do much cooking at all. You ever tried to cook biscuits with regular flour instead of self-rising flour? Doesn't work out so well, does it? Because the one key ingredient makes all the difference in the world. We're going to look today at a passage of Scripture that teaches us the same thing. That there is one key ingredient and when, when that ingredient is missing, our Christian lives just don't seem to work. We're in Acts chapter 18 this morning. We're going to begin looking at Acts 18, verse 18. We're going to go all the way through chapter 19, verse 7. We're going to look at two stories that Luke is putting together for us to teach us one thing, and this is this principle of the missing ingredient. We remember where we are in the Acts story. At the end of uh, the previous passage, Paul is in Corinth. He's been in Corinth for quite a while now. Remember the ruling from Gallio. Gallio ruled that Uh, Paul could stay here as long as he wanted. Whatever theological differences they had between them was between them. And so Paul has remained in Corinth where he met Aquila and Priscilla, and he has been ministering in Corinth for some time. So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, and then we're going to look uh, down through verse 23, and we'll make a few comments about that section of Scripture, and then we'll move on to verse 24, because there begins the main section of our passage this morning. Beginning from verse 18, Read these words. After this, Paul stayed many days and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening all of the disciples. Wow. You ever had somebody tell you maybe just two or three sentences that summarize years and years of their life? Like for example, if right now I were to say to you, "Um, a whole lot has happened in my life, and then move on from there, One sentence summarizes four decades of living. That's kind of what Luke has done in these verses. He has given us just a few sentences that summarize literally years of early church history, years of the Apostle Paul's life. Let's take a look at what he's saying. Again, we know that Paul is in Corinth at the beginning of the passage in verse 18, and he's been there for some time. He met Priscilla and Aquila there. And then beginning from verse 18, Paul leaves Corinth. He sets sail and he goes uh, to set sail to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila go with him. They've now partnered together with him in this ministry. And so he goes to this place, Sincre, and he visits the barber because he took a vow. Now, what's that all about? Well, I don't want to to spend too much time there because Luke doesn't spend much time there. But basically, the nuts and bolts of that is this. Paul had taken a vow called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was a vow that Moses described in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow was a vow that a Jewish man could take when he was experiencing a time of particular thankfulness to God, particular gratefulness for something that God had done for him in his life. He could take this Nazarite vow. So, why does Paul take this Nazarite vow? Because of something that happened to him in Corinth, which was the ruling of Gallio. The ruling of Gallio gave Paul several years, maybe a couple of years, of Peaceful ministry in Corinth. No beatings, no jailings, no overt persecution. And for that, Paul was very thankful. He was very grateful. So he takes this Nazarite vow. Now, number six tells us about what the vow included. It included, first of all, the complete abstaining from all fruit of the vine. So grapes, wine, raisins, whatever. For a period of time, maybe a year or two years, Paul abstained from the fruit of the vine out of thankfulness to God similar to a fast. And it also included the abstaining, the complete abstaining from all cutting of the hair. And at the conclusion of the vow, not only would they cut the hair, but they would shave all of their hair. Which you can see this is a big deal for a Jewish man to take this vow. So Paul concludes the vow, shaves his hair, and then um, they came to Ephesus. And he left uh, Aquila and Priscilla there. Paul does his normal thing. He goes into the synagogue of Ephesus. He preaches and teaches from the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews for a time. They're interested in what he's saying, so they ask him to stay. For some reason, he's inclined not to stay. The Holy Spirit perhaps is, in, is compelling him not to stay, so he declines, telling them that he'll come back as long as God allows this. And he sets sail from Ephesus, leaving Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus to continue the work of the gospel. Leaving Ephesus, he sails to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. He lands there, and then it says he says uh, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. What that means is he went to Jerusalem. Jews would always say go up to Jerusalem and come down from Jerusalem. So that means he went to Jerusalem, visited the church in Jerusalem, comes back to Antioch. Remember, Antioch is his home church. That's the church that has ordained him and sent him out on this missionary journey. They're sponsoring him on this missionary journey. He comes back to Antioch Spent some time there in Antioch. And then, verse 23, he departs and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia. So now he departs, verse 23, on his third missionary journey. This is the third journey of Paul. This is the last journey of Paul that will be narrated in the book of Acts. Some people believe that Paul took a fourth missionary journey after this. If so, it's not narrated to us in the book of Acts. So this is the last missionary journey that we're going to read about. So he sets out on this third missionary journey from Antioch and it says that he uh, went through the region of Galatia and Perga strengthening all the disciples. That is an incredible amount of things that happened in those few verses there. First of all, all that we just talked about, but then more so this going through the region of Galatia and Perga. He ends up as we'll see a little, little bit later on chapter 18 Chapter 19, they're all about Ephesus. So two chapters, we're going to to hear about Ephesus. So Paul ends up in Ephesus. In order to get to Ephesus from Antioch, Paul could have gone two different ways. He could have gone over water, which would have been a long journey, but an easy journey. Or he could have gone over land, which is what he does. He goes over land through the regions of Galatia and Perga for the purpose of strengthening the churches there, strengthening the disciples there. What that means is, Paul journeyed a distance 1,000 to 1,500 miles on foot. Depending on exactly which route he took, that would have been 1,000 to 1,500 miles on foot. And the reason he does this is to strengthen the disciples. So I just want to pause here in this section and just contemplate for a moment the importance that the Apostle Paul and the early church placed on discipling young believers. Discipling believers into maturity in Christ. Paul was willing to spend perhaps a couple of years of his life and walking over a thousand miles in order to strengthen the church, to encourage, to disciple, to teach, and to train the church. Just take a a look real quickly at the influence that the early church placed on discipleship. We look back in chapter... 15, verse 41. Paul went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Chapter 16, verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Or we look over to chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The early church seems to follow this pattern of placing extreme emphasis on discipling young believers. Encouraging, teaching, nurturing them, moving them along to spiritual maturity. It is true, folks, that the faith that God has entrusted to you, He will guard it until the day of Jesus Christ. The faith that He has given you, God will not allow that faith to depart. You will continue to believe because God will make you to continue to believe. He will enable you to continue to believe. But at the same time, that does, not in, in, that does in no way relieve us of the responsibility of nurturing that faith within ourselves and more importantly, within others. That's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is all about. Our responsibility, our collective responsibility to nurture one another into maturity in Christ. It is impossible for you to be a follower of Christ outside of His church. Because outside of His church, you do not have the ability to be strengthened in the faith by others and to use your faith to strengthen others. It is impossible to be a Christ follower without the church. Not only are you in open disobedience to Him, but you are depriving yourself of one of God's central means of growing you into maturity in Christ. And so, We see the relevance that they place on this, the importance that they place on this. Um, And now we're going to move on to verse 24. That whole section right there, it was really just sort of a bridge that Luke puts in there. He doesn't give us a whole lot of details. He basically wants to get Paul from Corinth back to Ephesus, and so he he takes this really high-altitude pass over several years of Paul's life. Because what he really wants to get to is verse 24. Now in verse 24, we go back to Ephesus. Paul is not in Ephesus. Paul um, has not made it back to Ephesus yet. But remember who's there. Aquila and Phila are there in Ephesus. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So this fellow Apollos comes to Ephesus. He is from Alexandria, which makes him an Egyptian. He's a Jew. We know the culture of Alexandria at this time was a culture of um, very, shall we say, um, highbrow intellectual Judaism. Very learned Judaism. The culture in Alexandria had developed a very high degree of knowledge about the Jewish faith. To put it that way. About 500 years before this, there was this thing called the exile. We all know about that. Babylon came in and they defeated Jerusalem, slaughtered a bunch of people, burned the city down, carried off all the gold and treasures, as well as thousands of people into exile. Thousands of Jews were carried into exile in Babylon. However, they didn't carry everybody at all. Thousands of other Jews escaped, and the majority of those escaped to Alexandria. And so now, 500 years later, those escaped Jews from Jerusalem that fled from the exile have now developed a culture there in Alexandria, a very strong Jewish culture, a strong Jewish presence, And they had developed a lot of Jewish learning. By this point, very few Jews read their Scriptures in the Hebrew. They read them in the the Greek. It had been translated into the Greek language by this point. And all of that translation work had taken place in Alexandria. Alexandria was sort of a center for for Jewish learning. And it is out of that culture that Apollos comes. Paul tells us, first of all, that, that Apollos was an eloquent man That word eloquent, logios, it can mean strong in words, or it can mean strong in ideas. Perhaps it means a little bit of both. So he was a very learned person, intelligent. Um, He also spoke very well. He was compelling to listen to. He was eloquent. He uh, was competent in Scriptures. Boy, how do we need that today. Competent in the Scriptures. Um, You know, competency in the Scriptures is not optional for a minister of the gospel. I continue to be surprised at how many ministers of the Gospel I come across that seem to think that competency in the Scriptures is somehow optional, but it is not. How we need men today who are competent in the Scriptures. But Apollos was competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Reminds you of Paul, doesn't it? Reminds us a lot of Paul. And And being fervent in spirit, that means he was passionate. He had a lot of zeal for God. He loved God. He was a passionate man, fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So, that tells us that Apollos was preaching the Christian gospel, right? Not so much. Because Luke goes on to say, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos is a learned person, competent in the Scriptures, teaching accurately the things about Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. What does that tell us? That tells us that Apollos must have been some type of a disciple of John the Baptist. He was competent in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was was a a person who loved God, had a zeal for God, but he did not the complete gospel. At this point, he was outside of Christ. We would have considered him a good Jew. Very much like Paul before his conversion. Because he does not have the complete Gospel. What does John? What is the message of John the Baptist? Or what is the baptism of John the Baptist? You remember, the message of John the Baptist was this. Prepare the way of the Lord, for the Messiah is coming and He's almost here. In fact, here He is. Remember? That was John's whole message. He, he baptized people in a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. In your sermon notes here, you'll see uh, what the angel, in fact, says to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, about the baby in her womb, the miracle baby in her womb. Luke 1, the angel says this, and he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. Uh, He will go before them in spirit and in power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people to God to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was John's mission. And His message was a message of preparation. The Messiah is coming. In fact, John even recognized the Messiah when he saw Him. Remember John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. But did John have the complete Gospel? He did not. Because he was executed when Jesus was just beginning His ministry. And so John knew nothing of the cross. He knew nothing of the empty tomb. He knew nothing of of the atonement made on the cross. He knew nothing of the institution of believer's baptism. He knew nothing of of the Lord's Supper. He knew accurately what the Scriptures taught about the Messiah who was coming, but he did not see and understand what the Messiah did when he got here. And so Apollos, who is learned and competent in the message of John the Baptist, would have been a person who was very equipped to preach the message that John preached. Prepare for the Messiah. He's coming. And in fact, He's Jesus. But He would have been in knowledge about the cross or the resurrection, which was the core message of the Gospel. Still is the core message of the Gospel, right? We've seen that over and over in the story of Acts. The core message of the Gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, we don't have the Gospel yet. And so Apollos was lacking that. In other words, Apollos was missing a key ingredient. The ingredient he was missing was the Holy Spirit. Apollos was not a holy and spirit dwelt Christian believer at this point. But notice what happens. He goes into the synagogue, verse, uh, verse 28. I'm sorry, 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But then, but but when, sorry. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now earlier, Luke told us that he was teaching the things of Jesus accurately. Now Priscilla and Aquila explained to him the things of Jesus more accurately. That doesn't mean that he was wrong before. It means he was not complete. Accurate and complete are not the same thing. So he was teaching what he had accurately. He was accurately expositing from the Scriptures before. Only his message was incomplete. Aquila and Priscilla take him and they show him the complete message. They teach him about the death and burial and resurrection. They teach him of the cross and the empty tomb. They teach him of the baptism and the And They teach him all these things. But notice what they do. They take him aside. Probably into their home. They don't rebuke him in public. They don't shout him down in the temple. They don't proclaim in front of everybody and embarrass everybody. Embarrass Him in front of everybody. Hey, you don't have the full story here. That's what they don't do. They're not prideful in that way. They take Him into their home and privately show Him and teach Him. Listen, this is the Messiah. You're right. He's come and He is Jesus, but here's what He did. Wow, the, the uh, humility... Of Priscilla and Aquila is to be admired at this point because you ever been in those situations in which you know more about something that's being presented than the person presenting it? You ever been in those situations where you know more about the subject than the speaker himself knows? And what do you want to do in those situations? You want to show everybody in the room that you know more than the, than the present. Reminds me of the story, by the way, the story of a college physics professor. There was once a college physics professor who had a long and grand career. He made many influential advances in the area of physics, wrote many books. And near the end of his career, he takes a speaking tour. And he's going to spend about a year going around to different schools and colleges delivering these speeches about all the work that he's done in his career. And on this speaking tour, he has a chauffeur. It's taking him from engagement to engagement. And near the end of the year, the, uh, the, the college professor is kind of getting... Worn out of this. Doing all this speaking. And and as they're they're driving to one of the last engagements, the professor says to his chauffeur in the car, he says, I'm just really tired of doing this. I'm tired of speaking. I wish that I could just get out of this next speaking engagement. To which the chauffeur answers, well, boss, why don't you let me take over and do this? I've heard every speech you've given, and I've memorized them all. Now, the chauffeur... He was not a particularly educated person. In fact, he didn't graduate high school. But he had listened to every speech that the professor had given for a year. And he had a memoir. So he said, hey, boss, why don't you just let me take over? We kind of look alike. We could change clothes. And I bet I could pass as you. None of these people have met you in person. And I could give the same speech that you're going to give. So the professor was just tired enough of doing this that he said yes. All right, so they get to the auditorium. They change clothes. The auditorium fills up, not an empty seat in the whole place. The chauffeur comes up to the podium, takes the podium, delivers the speech perfectly. Gets every point exactly crystal clear. At the end of the speech, there's a standing ovation several minutes long. But at the end of that standing ovation, something surprising happens. The person on the front row says, Excuse me, Professor, may I ask a question? You see, I'm a college physics professor too. And I've been working on this physics problem for years and years and I just can't come up with a solution and I'm sure that someone of your stature can help me with this problem that I cannot solve. You see, I'm a physics professor and I'm also an avid golfer. And I've been trying to work out the relationship between a golf ball as it travels through the air and the aerodynamics of that golf ball. You see, we all know that golf balls, the reason golf balls have dimples is because those dimples help them to travel through the air further. Well, this physics professor wanted to know exactly how that works. So he said, let me just ask this question that I can't figure out. If I hit a golf ball with a force of 200 pounds per square foot, and it leaves the tee at an initial velocity of 45 feet per second, on an arc of 20 degrees, traveling through air of 50% relative humidity, How much further will a dimpled golf ball travel than a smooth golf ball? And what coefficient do I use to figure that out? Well, the chauffeur didn't miss a beat. Looked directly at the young man and said, Sir, I am surprised at you. I am frankly surprised and shocked and disappointed that you would ask such an elementary question here at an event like this. Everybody in this room knows how to figure that out. In all of my career, I have never been asked a more simple, basic question about physics. And I'm going to illustrate to you just how simple that question is. I'm going to have my chauffeur in the back of the room answer that for you. See, the chauffeur knew more about the subject matter than the speaker. You may have been in those situations where you know more about what's being said than the person speaking. And the prideful temptation is to show yourself in all the room as being more knowledgeable than the one speaking. Priscilla and Aquila don't do that. Instead, they humbly take Him into their own home and show Him more correctly, more accurately, more completely the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, the finished atonement, and immediately, Apollos is converted. He's regenerated. He goes, just like the Apostle Paul, he goes from a good Jew to a Christian. And he then receives the missing ingredient. Because look at the change that we see in Apollos now, verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's compare what Luke said about Apollos before to what Luke says about Apollos now. Before he was competent, educated, eloquent, bold, fervent. Now, he's powerful. Now he's effective. He lands in Corinth, which is where he goes, he lands in Corinth like a bombshell. And he begins strengthening the disciples there. He begins encouraging the church there. He begins refuting the Jews in public, showing from the Scriptures that the Christ is Jesus. You see the difference between the two. Apollos was missing a key ingredient. The Holy Spirit. He now is filled with that key ingredient. And we see a dramatic difference in his ministry. Folks, a lot of of people today are missing that key ingredient. And they're just like Apollos. They're very religious. Maybe very learned about their religion. Maybe very dedicated to their religion. Maybe they spend a lot of time sacrificing for that religion. And yet they're missing a the key ingredient. They're speaking about someone whom they don't know. Just like Apollos. Apollos is like the father of all people who tried to find satisfaction in religion. And no matter how far they progressed, satisfaction was not to be found because they were speaking of someone whom they don't know. You know the difference between speaking about someone whom you know compared to speaking to some, about someone whom you don't know? I could speak to you this morning a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I could give you a lot of facts about his life, about what kind of person he was and what he did. You could get a pretty good picture of who he was but you'd also know very clearly that I did not know him. By contrast, I could speak to you this morning about my grandfather. I could tell you also a lot of facts about him and a lot of things about his life, but the difference would be that I would be speaking to you of someone whom I know And that makes all the difference in the world. There are many today who are trying to speak of Jesus Christ and they don't know. and Their ministries are ineffective and powerless. I think... One thing that comes to mind here is the ministry of John Wesley. We all know the name of John Wesley, don't we? How powerful of a minister for the Gospel he was. But probably few of us know of the history of John Wesley. You see, John Wesley was born into a situation in which he he had all the advantages, a pathway to ministry. He was born to a clergyman father. He attended Oxford Seminary from a young age, excelled in Oxford Seminary went on to be a professor of Greek at Oxford Seminary. Was voted among, among the people at that seminary as one of the people on campus most fervently devoted to their faith and to holiness. Later on, he was elected to go to the New World, to Georgia, to be a missionary to Native Americans here. Comes to Georgia, spends some time as a missionary to Native Americans. Goes back home in utter failure. On the way home, he even writes, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? And then he had the great fortune of meeting some Moravian Christians who introduced him to faith in Jesus Christ. And he came to know the person about whom he had been talking. And that made all the difference in the world in his ministry. He then had a powerful and effective ministry. The same thing we see in Apollos here as well. So that's one thing that we see from Apollos is that sometimes we hear people speak about someone whom they don't know. The second thing I want to say is in the same way that Apollos' message was ineffective without the Gospel, so also is ours. Apollos' message may have been interesting. It may have held the attention of the people. He may have delivered it eloquently. But when he was missing the key elements of the bloody cross and the empty tomb, his message was Powerless. When His message became a complete message of the Gospel, including the bloody cross and the empty tomb, and the atonement completed on the cross, His message then became powerful. In the same way, folks, our message today is powerless without the message of atonement on the cross. So two things for us to see from Apollos. But let's keep going into chapter 19. I think you'll see that these, these stories are intricately connected. So beginning from verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So he comes across these disciples in, uh, in Corinth or at Ephesus. Paul arrives at Ephesus and he comes across these disciples. Paul comes right out and asks them, Do you have the Spirit? What are you talking about? We don't know about a Spirit. It's like, um, you know the story of Rip Van Winkle? Did you study that in school? Rip Van Winkle, the, the, uh, the story, Washington Irvin, where this guy, uh, Rip Van Winkle, he has this nagging wife, Dame Van Winkle, and he, wants, he, he has this habit of trying to get away from her nagging, and he goes into the woods for naps. And one day he goes into the woods for a 20-year nap, wakes up, his, his hunting rifle's all rotted, his beard's two feet long and everything. He comes back into town, doesn't know anybody. His son's all grown up, and everybody's talking about this new America And he says, what are you talking about? What what kind of republic? Continental Congress? What are you talking about? He's been asleep for 20 years. Kind of like these folks here, these these disciples are kind of like spiritual Rip Van Winkles. What are you talking about? Spirit? Holy Spirit? Now, Luke is not trying to tell us that they didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. They're not ignorant that there is a Holy Spirit. They're ignorant that the Holy Spirit has come, that the Spirit has been given. Because look at what he says in verse 4. And or I'm sorry, verse three, and he said, "Into what then were you baptized?" They said, "Into John's baptism. So more of John's disciples who have an incomplete gospel, they know that Messiah is coming and in fact is here, but they don't know what Messiah has done. And so not believing upon the cross, they have not been converted and they've not received the Spirit. They don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They know that there is a spirit, but they don't know that that spirit has been given. Because these, just like these disciples, just like Apollo's. We're good Jews. Don't be fooled when Luke calls them disciples. All disciples means is follower or learner. We see the Bible talk about disciples from time to time, and it doesn't always mean Christian. For example, Mark chapter 2 talks about the disciples of the Pharisees. Or Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 6. Some of the disciples, some of Jesus' disciples leave Jesus when his teaching gets hard and they don't come back. So disciple doesn't equal Christian. But then furthermore, we know that they weren't believers because they did not have the Spirit. That is the preeminent sign. That is the preeminent evidence that we are regenerated and we are born again. It's the presence of the Spirit within us. As Paul will say to the Ephesians from Ephesians 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, in that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So they're not believers yet because they don't have the Spirit. But then, look what happens. Verse 4, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the One who was to come after Him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid His hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And so we see the same thing here. The same thing Luke is teaching us through Apollos and through these twelve disciples. Missing ingredient. They had religion. They had devotion. They loved God. They were passionate about the church. They identified with God. They even identified with the Messiah. They recognized and affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. Wow, they've got a lot, don't they? But they don't have salvation. Because Acts 4 verse 13 tells us there is only one name given under heaven by which we are saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And you know, the name of Jesus Christ isn't some magical formula that when you say that name, that means that you're saved. What, Paul, or what Luke is saying there is this. Faith, conscious faith, in the atoning work of a God who would sacrifice Himself for us. Who would put Himself on a block of wood and be hung naked in the sun until dead. But rise again three days later. Without that element, there is no salvation. Folks, that should come down upon us like a ton of bricks. How many people, how many people exist in this world who love God, who think of themselves as religious people, who are dedicated to their religion, are sincere in their beliefs? without conscious faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Let me just leave us with two applications. The first of which is going to be real obvious. to It is very possible, folks, perhaps very common, for people to be dedicated to a church for years, even decades, investing their lives into that church investing their money into that church, loving the church, the people of the church, loving the God of the church, and still be outside of Christ. Because there is only one thing that saves and that is conscious faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin. Outside of that, your dedication to this church does not save you, nor is it even necessarily evidence that you are saved. Your love of God. Your affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. You can have all of that without conscious faith and repentance. You are outside of Christ. Do you have that this morning? There's only one person on this planet that can answer that, and that is you. Let me encourage you to open your heart to the Spirit right now. (laughs) Seeking the answer to that. Do I have the Spirit? Romans 8.16 do I have the Spirit of Christ in me that cries out, Abba, Father? Outside of conscious faith in Jesus Christ in repentance of sin, there is no salvation. That's the first application. The second application is this. There may be some here this morning whom you are spirit-indwelt, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Genuine children by work of Jesus Christ on the cross. and dwelt by the Spirit yet you are not filled by His Spirit. The story of Acts is teaching us very clearly that there is a difference between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens one time for each believer. One time and one time only. As Paul just told us in Ephesians chapter 1, the moment of belief means that the Holy Spirit dwells you, enters into you, never to leave again. That's a one-time event. But folks, being indwelt by the Spirit is not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Another thing the story of Acts is teaching us over and over is what it means to be filled by the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit means that you speak powerful and effective testimony for Christ. That your life is a powerful and effective testimony for Christ. So there may be many here who are indwelt by the Spirit and yet not filled by the Spirit. So, the question is, how do I get filled by the Spirit? If I believe myself to be a true, genuine child of God, yet I'm not filled with His Spirit, how do I get that? How am I filled with His Spirit? And the answer to that, folks, is very, very simple. You are filled by His Spirit in the same way that you are indwelt by His Spirit. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk with Him. In the same way you are indwelt by His Spirit at conversion is the very same way you are filled by His Spirit through your ongoing Christian life. How are you indwelt by the Spirit? By faith and repentance. The same thing. Repentance of sin, conscious faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's the same way that you're filled by the Spirit. Some of us here this morning need to repent of our lack of belief. I don't mean to say you've stopped believing in Jesus. But what I mean to say is that your life has become clogged up with all kinds of other beliefs that are are detracting your attention away from your conscious belief in Jesus. And you need to renew that this morning. What more appropriate time to do this as we come to the table? A couple of weeks ago, we witnessed the baptism. The baptism is the symbolic beginning of the Christian life. The supper is the symbolic continuing of the Christian life. What more appropriate time to renew that belief in Jesus. Renew your repentance. Folks, repentance is not a one-time shot. It's a lifetime. It is a lifestyle of repentance. Repenting of thought patterns, emotional patterns, attitudes, behaviors. Some of you need to do that before you come to the table that you may be filled anew with the Spirit. Some of you need to renew your belief. And again, I'm not saying that you may have lost your salvation, but I'm saying that the filling of the Spirit, the control of the Spirit in your life comes to you the same way it initially came to you. Let me finish with John chapter 7, verse 37-39. through This is in your sermon notes. Jesus says this, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound like a description of the Spirit-filled Christian? Out of him will flow rivers of living water. And make no mistake, Jesus was talking about the filling of the Spirit because He goes on to say, now He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Let me encourage you this morning. To renew your belief, your faith, your conscious conscious belief in the exclusivity of the cross, the promises of God that were fulfilled on that bloody piece of wood, the, the stone that was rolled away, the empty grave clothes that were found, the institution of believers' baptism and the supper, let me encourage you to renew your belief and your repentance in that this morning. Be filled with this Spirit and then come to the table, the Spirit-filled child of God.